Welcome to Journey Through Genesis. We are in Genesis 7, and we're going to do Genesis 7 and Genesis 8 uh, tonight. And I want to say uh, a prayer, and then we'll go from there. Father, thank you so much for your word. It indeed is a light. It is a guide to our pathway, Lord. It, it's how we know how to live, how to walk. It instructs us, Lord. It tells us in the way that we should go. And I pray, God, that you would just illuminate that word, reveal your word to us, make it very uh, uh, real and alive in our spirits tonight. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Now, let me do a little review. We looked at Genesis 6 last time. And in Genesis 6, we saw where Noah was the last man standing. You remember that? Noah was the last man standing. He was the last man standing. And the reason why was because it took so long, 500 years of offering sacrifices, 500 years he stayed faithful. And then the Lord at the 500-year mark said to Noah, Noah, I want you to build a boat. And for the next 120 years, his father, possibly his grandfather, his family, and the rest of humanity quit offering sacrifices. It took so long. The idea was this, and the New Testament talks about it. Where is the promise of his coming? You promised a flood, Lord. You promised judgment. It hasn't come. It must not ever going to be coming. And they gave up, and they quit serving the Lord in the prescribed way. But Noah didn't. Noah just kept plodding along. He was a plotter. So he was the last man standing because it took so long. Now, we get several versions of the flood story with some added details in Genesis 7. In each series of verses, there are more details added. But it's kind of repeating itself and saying the same thing uh, over and over. So we'll kind of hurry through some of these verses. We'll start with verse 1. So remember, he's the last man standing, and now he is about to enter into the boat, and the flood is about to come. So here we go. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Let me just stop and say for a second, Noah was not perfect. What made him righteous was the sacrifice. I'm telling you, that's just what, it wasn't that he was, the second thing he did when he got off the boat, we'll see this, I don't want to get ahead of myself, was he planted a vineyard, he harvested the grapes, they fermented, and he got stone drunk. Noah was not perfect. Now, in his defense, if you'd have seen a billion people die at one time, if everything you had known disappeared in a second of time, and you had the opportunity. But you shouldn't. And Noah shouldn't have. Noah was not perfect, but he was leaning on the sacrifice. Christians are not perfect. We just lean on the sacrifice. I've got a Savior that ever lives to make intercession for me. We saw that way back in the early days, you know. The, the lamb that was slain, Adam was Eve's intercessor. He failed her. 
But we have another Adam, and we came out of his bloody side, and we are his bride. And when he stands, we stand, and when we fall, he still stands. And he covers us. He's our high priest. He's our intercessor. So Noah was looking to the sacrifice. That's why he was righteous before God in his generation. Everybody else had quit looking to the sacrifice. Verse 2. You shall take with you seven. You will take you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female. It's just kind of interesting the way that's worded, right? A male and his female. That's my female. She's telling me you better move on. <clears throat> To each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So this version of the story includes the fact that there are seven clean animals, And there are two of the unclean animals to preserve the species. Why seven of the clean animals? The clean animals were the animals that could be used for sacrifice. And God knew Noah would offer them, as we'll see. Verses 5 through 10, And Noah did according to all the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah. Male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. It's another way of saying what happened. Verses 11 through 14. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, we start getting very specific, the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Now that's the same wording where it says, prove me and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't contain. Over in Malachi, speaking of tithes and offerings, it's the same idea. It's the floodgates of heaven. So we have the fountains of the deep broken up, the floodgates of heaven open, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort, and they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The animals listened to the voice of God. He didn't have to go wrangle them, you know, try to ranch, herd cats. They came. The call of God. God called them. You know, we see a little of this today with migration. Animals migrate. We see those Canadian geese that don't ever seem to go back to Canada around here. We used to have them at River Community, and they would attack our parishioners as we went into church on Sunday nights because they're mean geese. Well, then in our neighborhood right behind there where we used to live, they would come over and attack us there. 
Then we went to Tiggy Duplicis, and lo and behold, those sorry geese found us there. And our ushers had to get on geese patrol at times. Y'all remember that? You remember that, Bobby? Those geese? What'd you name them? Those two? Mystery and Debbie? Aaron had a couple of favorites. And they would attack and, and then we have Lyra Jane. Lizzie has Lyra Jane. We're at Woman's. Those geese are everywhere. Canadian geese migrated down here. They're supposed to migrate back. But they don't want to go back. They came, they stayed. But we see evidence of the fact that God can move the animals. They have an internal knowing. If you've ever been to San Juan Capistrano and you've seen those swallows, that's amazing the way. They just know where to go, when to go there. It's incredible. So in a sense, this was a mass migration to this ark that Noah built. And it says, the Lord shut them in. Another aspect of this story. Verses 11, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. We've looked at this before, just briefly. It's hard to prove any of this. This is, you know, we have no way of knowing, but it appears, it looks as if there was some kind of vapor or water canopy that covered the earth prior to the flood. And it looks as if God burst that canopy and then also broke up the water table beneath. And so we have the earth opening up, the heavens opening up, and we have this deluge that takes place, this flood. Guzik points out the description of the flood in this passage is so complete and specific that it is impossible to reconcile it being a local flood with the biblical record. Some try to say this just happened right around that area, but the description is, is totally different. It's telling of a wide, wide, a worldwide deluge. If this were not a global flood, then the ark itself would have been unnecessary. Right? They could have gone where there was no water. If this were only a local flood, then God's promise to never again bring such a flood is false. If this were only a local flood, the Bible is wrong when it traces all of humanity back to Noah's sons and other passages that speak of a universal flood. And there's other scriptures. Literally hundreds of people groups have their own accounts and legends of the flood. One of the most remarkable is a Babylonian account, which is incredibly similar to the Genesis account in many ways. Since all mankind came from Noah's sons, then there are these stories that have survived. Are you with me? The late theologian, James Montgomery Boyce cited the legends of the Samo-Kubo tribe of New Guinea. Native American people groups such as the Apache, Navajo, Cree, Algonquin, the Tahano Oadhum of Arizona. Try saying that one. Native Brazilians, Peruvians, African Hottentots, natives of Greenland, South Sea Islanders, in religious expressions, you see it, so as Hindu, in local myths among the Chinese, Egyptians, Greeks, Persians, Australian Aborigines, this is in the words of James Montgomery Boyce, the Welsh, the Celtic tribes, Druids, Siberians, Lithuanians. Of the more than 200 cultures 
that have their own account of the flood, the following aspects of the story are common. Listen to this. 95% say the sole cause of the catastrophe is a flood. 88% describe a favored family like Noah and his family. 70% attribute survival to a boat. 66% say that the disaster is due to man's wickedness. 67% record that animals are saved. 57% describe that the survivors end up on a mountain. Many of the accounts as well speak of birds being released and sent out. A rainbow, eight persons being saved. Again, Guzik points out it took a lot of water, but there's plenty of water on the earth to do this. This is interesting. The topography of the earth is such that the water collects in oceans. If the earth were a perfect sphere, the oceans would cover all the land to a depth of two and a half to three miles. But it's not a perfect sphere because of its rotation, the moon, etc. Before the flood, the earth may have been nearer to a perfect sphere. We don't know, but it's interesting. There's historical, at least from the human record, uh, stories, legends, myths that are very similar to the Genesis account. From verse 10 and verses 16, Noah and his family and the animals were in the ark. This is interesting. For seven days with no rain. I mean, they've been working for 100 years, 120 years. And they finally finished the boat. And the Lord says, it's time to go inside. And they go in there. And they're in there for no apparent reason. Think about that. You slaved for 120 years. You've endured the ridicule of your culture. What are you doing, Noah? The Lord told me, I've got to build this boat. So they're in there for no apparent reason while nothing happens. Not a raindrop. Noah wasn't singing, raindrops keep falling on my head. There was no rain. They're in the ark for seven days, not a drop, no floodwaters coming from the deep, no water canopy opening up from heaven. I want you to look with me in 1 Peter 3. We have mentioned this earlier, but 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. We talked about Christ preaching to these spirits in prison. This is not a proclamation for response, like come shake the preacher's hands, Mr. Demons, but he went to preach to them to declare a truth. You failed. You tried to wipe out the seed of the woman, but you failed. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also a, a type, an antitype, my New King James says, but it's a type which now saves us. Baptism. Notice this. Baptism. 
not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. Remember Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. The, the idea is this from, from Noah's time. The boat was finished. The work was finished. The hammer, the nails, the saws, the teams, it was all done. It was in the tool shed. The, 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 the team, Noah and his family, they were done. They were seated in the ark. The work was finished and they entered into that work before it seemed necessary. And the reason why, I'm spending some time here, the reason why is because the boat, the reason it was so weird is because the boat needed what? Water. It needed water to function. In other words, they're in a boat with no water. My dad, my dad used to have bass boats. I've told you before, he didn't bass fish. He fished for white perch and brim. My dad was a cane pole fisherman. And, and, and he had big old bass boats. And we would go out on those big old bass boats and fish for white perch and brim. And if they weren't biting, we'd rob wasp nests on the sides of boathouses that were about the size of the boathouse itself. And my dad was notorious for that. Pull up to it, get his pole, say, get ready. Shake the nest up, hit the motor, whoa, like and we'd take off. And it was just crazy, right? It was on. My dad was notorious for, if they weren't biting, we'd be out in the middle of Cross Lake or Cypress Lake or Black Bayou or Toledo Bend or, or, or Bistano or somewhere, and I'd be like, you know, having mirages and stuff like nothing's biting, you know, ah, foaming at the mouth, eyes roll back in my head, and all of a sudden I would hear, kaploos, and I look, and my dad's done jumped in the water. He was bored. ADD kicked in, you know, he jumps in the water. And so he's like, come on in. We jump in and swim for a while, you know. I'm an only child. <laughs> what can I say? It was just me and dad. And so we, uh, but, but he would park that boat in our garage or our carport, different houses. And there were times me and my cousin, we'd go play in the boat. We'd go crawl up in the boat, sit there, do this with the motor, you know, steer. Uh, we had my dad had steer wheel boats, but in the early days he had to stick. You know, you get the stick going and move the motor back and forth. And we'd play with the boat and play play like we were fishing or skiing or something or whatever. And uh, just you know, but a boat is made for water. So Noah and his family get into this finished product, the ark, for no reason for seven days. It just didn't make a lick of sense. He's saying, there's a judgment coming. There's water coming. I'm telling you. Now, Romans 6.3 says we're baptized into Christ. And I don't want to take away from the immediacy of what happens in our water baptism. But I will say this. 
when you're water baptized into Christ, I mean, it. we get good feelings, we get goosebumps, we're obeying the word. The Bible says our sins are remitted. But you know what? You get up in the morning after a water baptism, like Paul was baptized Sunday. He got up Monday morning, and you know what? If he wanted to sin, he could sin. If he wanted to think bad thoughts, he could think bad thoughts. The Bible says that we have to renew our mind. The Bible says we have to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, this whole sanctification process. We haven't been changed into what is going to happen. There is another side of this redemption coming. As a matter of fact, we're being saved from judgment. Judgment is coming. You don't hear that preached in church anymore. There is a hell to shun, and there is a heaven to gain. And we're not just saved so we can get on the serve team at the local church. We're not just saved so we we can park cars or become an usher or a greeter, which you ought to do. You're not just saved so you can sing in the band and play in the band or, or, or you know, lead a team or... You're not just saved, brothers and sisters. We're saved because there's a judgment coming. And we've been saved from that judgment. And we have been baptized into Christ. But we're in this seven-day waiting period where it looks like we're in Him for no apparent reason. Because Christians can make mistakes. Christians can mess up. Christians can fall. Christians get sick. Christians die. But the difference is, one of these days, the heavens are going to open, right? Hey, and, 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 and the dead in Christ, in Christ, will rise first. And those of us who are alive in Christ, people saying, why did you do that? Why have you been baptized in Christ? Why are you serving Him? I'll tell you why. It's not just for this side. I mean, the blessings of the Lord make rich and He has no sorrow to it. It is the will of God to heal. It is the will of God for you to walk with your needs met according to His riches and glory in this present world. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But if in this life alone we have hope, of all men we are most miserable, there is a day coming when we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Hallelujah. Give Him praise for that right now. So, we've been baptized into Christ, saved from hell, but there's no flames yet. I don't see the flames. I don't see the fire. It's it's the same on the inside of the boat at this point, Noah, as it is on the outside of the boat. As a matter of fact, it's even a little more constrictive, restrictive. It, it, it's these nasty, smelly animals in the boat. What are you doing in the boat, Noah? The Lord told me to enter the boat. Why? You just need to trust Him. And for seven days, they're in there looking like fools. And we are in Christ. Sometimes people think we look like fools. But you just fasten your seatbelt, honey, because one day we ain't going to look like the fools. 
those outside of Christ are going to look like the fools. We have heard that call. We've responded to that call. And the day came when the Lord shut that door. And I'm telling you, the, the Lord's going to open a door in heaven one day, call us up and shut that door. Amen? Hallelujah. We're living for another day. So, we enter in before the judgment. But make no mistake, judgment is coming. There's a, a, another passage. I just have to connect this. This is one of my favorite subjects. Those of you who have been around here, you've heard me talk about it. I just get obsessed with this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We don't hear enough preaching on the coming of the Lord. And some of the preaching we hear is based on, how can I say it, just like the fictionalized movie stuff. It's, it's watered down, man. It's just so vanilla. The Word is rich. I mean, nothing against them, but it's not like Nicolas Cage stories. You know what I mean? It's deep, epic, rich, powerful. Powerful, man. It's, it, it is so much bigger than the watered-down versions that, that we've become accustomed to, especially in North America, just that watered-down stuff. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching's empty. Your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. King James, most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead, listen, and has become the first fruits. Everybody say the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, in Christ, in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Now here's, here's some preaching you don't hear about every day, right? This is the end. We, we, we're in journey through Genesis. So, so it all fell apart over here in Genesis 2. And, and this is taking it all the way to the absolute end of the solution. That's what he's saying here. Christ the first fruits. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. 
For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Again, preaching you don't hear very often, although we covered this extensively in Expedition Early Church back in the day. That three and a half year series we did. <laughs> now, when all, uh, uh, verse 29, otherwise, listen, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Now, Mormons take this scripture and baptize people by proxy. They baptize for the dead, the departed. Oh, they weren't baptized? Listen, we can baptize you and assign the act of baptism that you've gone through to that person that died and didn't get baptized. And they'll use this scripture as a proof text. Baptizing for people who didn't get a chance to get baptized. I disagree with that. I don't think that's at all what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying. There is no other text in the Word of God that even hints at that being a possibility. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You, you don't get the by proxy, and I'll say this, and I don't want to offend my Catholic uh, friends, but I don't believe in purgatory. It's not that so-and-so had, they were so good, they've got extra good, and we can get some of that extra good and put it on the ones that were, you know, mediocre, you know, Uncle Joe, who was kind of like mediocre, right? We want to get a little extra good from Aunt so-and-so and put it on Uncle Joe. I have an Uncle Joe. We shouldn't say that. But, you know, somebody random in your family that you know about, they, they weren't all that. So we want to put some of the excess good of Mima on them. It's not how that works it, at all. It's like you're, you're responsible for your life. It's between you and God. I believe in the power of community and living this thing together, but ultimately we're going to stand before God by ourselves. Yes, sir. Well done, good and faithful servant, you and me. Depart from me. I never knew you. Boom. Enter in. It's individual. Are you with me? I don't want to lose you here. But here's the deal. This baptism for the dead, it's a weird thing. If you look at it, especially for baptizing for dead, or dead baptizing cadavers. Like, it's just crazy, right? That, that doesn't even make sense. You know, in the Ganges, they'll, they'll wash the dead. They do all these things. Religion has all these rituals and whatnot. It's not at all what this is saying. Romans 6 says that as many of you as have been baptized have been baptized into Christ's death that as he lives, so you shall live. The idea is this. Paul is making the case that there is a physical resurrection of the body that is coming. This is not the end of the road. This is just the temporary grounds. We're living for eternity. And what I'm saying is, it looks like we may have 
entered into this covenant for no apparent reason. We've entered into Christ for no apparent reason. We were baptized in water for no apparent reason. But Paul is making the case. He's saying, listen, it is sown a natural body, but it will be raised a supernatural body. It has been sown mortal, which means Enosh, death doomed. It has been sown mortal, but it will be raised immortal. The idea is this. That is not, we've used that at funerals as preachers. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's sown. We sow this body into the ground. That's not Paul associates this. You can go study it out in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the sowing of the body is not the burial of the body in the ground. Because later he talks about people that when Jesus returns, they never died. Their bodies were never buried. But they were buried in a water grave in Christ. And he's making the case the resurrection is a sure thing. You can bank on it. If Christ was the first fruits, and that goes back to Old Testament terminology where that priest would take a ring and throw it into a field and wherever that ring went around, they would take that harvest of those that, that grain and they would offer it as an offering to the Lord, a sacrifice to the Lord, a worship sacrifice to the Lord. And that, that ring, it would, it would fall in there. As surely as that was harvested, he's not done. Christ, the first fruits, and afterward, those who are his at his coming. He's coming back for his church. He's coming back for his bride. He's not going to leave us stranded here. And when we die, it's not over. And, and, and there's going to be people alive on planet earth. And there's saints throughout all the ages that have died. They physically died. But God is going to raise them up with a glorified body. Change those of us who are still alive on the planet. And it is a sure bet. As surely as the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday morning, so shall your life be forever changed when he returns if you're in Christ. Amen? So Noah and his family were in the ark, but it looked like for no apparent reason. Are you with me? You get that? I really wanted to, to drive that home. And you can look at all of that in 1 Corinthians 15. Martin Luther, in fits of despair, when he was depressed, facing the devil himself, just, just down, he was noted to say he would feel like the devil was manifesting in front of him and he was losing it all. And he would say to the devil, Devil, I have my baptism. And it was as if he was saying, You can come against me with everything you've got, but I have sown into Christ, and he ain't done with me yet. It's kind of like Job said, Hey, naked I came in this world, naked I'll leave. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Take it all. I mean, you want to wipe me out? I'm going to resist. I'm going to fight. But in the end, if I lose it all, listen, it don't matter. There's another day coming. 
I'm living for that other day. I'm going to walk on streets of gold. I'm going to take my crown off and throw it at his feet and worship him and forever be with the Lord. And we need that attitude sometimes. You know, devil, I got my baptism. I've been filled with the Spirit. I'm in Christ. I may not see all the benefits yet. Not fully. I may not feel all the benefits at this moment, but you just wait. Now let's look at verses 17 through 20. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased, lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. The ark moved above the surface of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward. Mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, creeping things that creep on the earth. I love that terminology. Not just creeping things, creeping things that creep on the earth. I had a creeping thing that creeps on the earth, creep right on up between my slab and my stucco in a little hole. And this creeping thing was about this long and about this big around. Maybe that's why I had a dream about snakes. Open the door, creeping thing. I said, Alexander, get the shovel. Before we could even move, that creeping thing crawled up in my wall. I hate snakes, but I live in Louisiana next to a swamp. Oh, where am I? Creeping things that creep on there. And every man, and in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, and the bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth. 150 days. In the Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrow, Darrow humiliated William Jennings Bryan by asking him if he believed every word in the Bible. That famous trial, Bryan said he did. Darrow asked him, how then did the fish drown in the flood? Bryan got confused, gave this long, lumbering, nonsensical speech, uh, got himself confused, and honestly didn't get anywhere. And the next day, William Jennings Bryan fell over dead. The truth of the matter is, the fish did not die. Not all the fish. Some of them probably from the chaos and the mixing of the different waters. But not all the fish died in the flood. The idea is this, the animals, the birds those that needed the dry land, they're the ones that died. The rains lasted for about 40 days and 40 nights. Noah and his family were in the boat for about a year. And the water began to recede at about the halfway point. So let's go to chapter 8. We'll start this. Think about that, man. They got in there seven days early, and they're in there for a year. Anybody ever like worked on a farm? My, my uncle Raymond had a farm. He had cows and horses. We used to go out there, and I don't think they probably did what Uncle Raymond did. Like, we wormed them. We, like, cut their horns, uh, put shoes on them. Right here. Yes. Well, I helped and watched some, right? But uh, Uncle Raymond had this farm, and, uh, man, you know, 
That's a nasty, stinky mess right there. Mimi and T. Cal used to go to Vidrine, Louisiana, and hang out with Mimi and T. Cal, and they had a pig farm. And those pigs, unbelievably disgusting. Y'all remember that time I showed the pig slopping on the screen up here? Oh, I got a lot of complaints about that. We, we probably shouldn't talk about it, but I thought it was a good idea as an illustration. Mimi and T-Cow, those pigs were so nasty, and uh, and I, I helped on that, slopped the pigs. It was just disgust. Chicken farms, those chicken houses are disgusting, stinky. I love, I love me some Popeyes. I love me some eggs, but I'm I'm telling you, those chicken houses just disgusting. And free range, whatever, you want free range. Some of you guys got free range. You got your house, your chicken house. We got chicken houses right down the road down here. It don't matter how you do it. They all nasty. They just nasty. It's un, uncanny how disgusting they are. One year on a boat, eight humans and all these animals. One year. There's no escape. It's not like you can say, I'm going to go out here for a while. I'm going to take a walk up the road for a little bit. You go from one end of the boat to the other. It's just you can't escape it. It's like one giant zoo. And it's just nasty all the time. So they're on that boat for a year. But in God's mercy and grace, he got them. No wonder, and we talk about Noah planting a vineyard, right? <laughs> oh, I shouldn't joke that way. Stand with me right now. Let me introduce this. Verses 1, just verse 1. Then God remembered Noah. Thank, thank you, Jesus. God remembered Noah. You know, bah, 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 bah. elephants, you know, lions, tigers. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth. The waters subsided. Fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. The rain from heaven was restrained. The waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased, and the ark rested on the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month, and the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. It came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. He sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out for himself, from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. The dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. She returned into the ark for him. So you have this dirty bird going out, resting on carcasses and whatnot. But this dove comes back and... You know, there's no clean place for me to go. The waters were on the face of the whole earth, so he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And He waited another seven days, and he sent out a dove out of the ark. That dove came back in the evening and beheld a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. Listen to this. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited another seven days, sent out a dove, which did not return again. To him anymore, and it came to pass in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. 
And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said, Noah, it's time to get out of the ark. Here's the bottom line. You just have to know how psychologically impacting that whole thing was. But it was also spiritually impacting. But what's so cool to me about Noah is that God told him to build the boat and knew it would be built. Gave him a new word, build a boat, because he was faithful to the old word. If he did that old word when nobody else was doing it, he'll do the new word when nobody else is doing it. So he made the boat. But that didn't stop him from continuing. He had those seven clean animals. He gets off the boat. First thing he does, gets some stones, takes a lamb. There's only seven of them. So it's risky. It was a costly sacrifice. And he cuts the throat, puts it on the altar. And he says, we're still looking for a Savior, Lord. I know my daddy named me Curse Reverser, but I'm not he. I'm not the one. And I'm looking forward to the Redeemer who will reverse this curse. Save me, Lord. No wonder he was called righteous. And that costly sacrifice, David said, I won't offer anything to him that doesn't cost me something. That costly sacrifice, the, the Bible says, we'll see it. The Bible says that God, it, it's anthropomorphic language. He, he sniffs. It's like he starts smelling. Oh, I smell a sweet-smelling savor. That's my boy. He's loving on me. He's trusting in me. What a beautiful thing. I'm going to tell you once again, folks, when times are tough, when you're the last one standing, if your wife or your husband is not serving the Lord, maybe your kids have gone nuts, you stay faithful and God will make a way where there seems to be no way. I mean, he caught all these animals. He put this plan in motion. All Noah did was just do what God asked him to do in the thick, in the thin, when it was popular, when it was not popular. He just walked that path. You walk the path. And I'm telling you, God will do amazing things. Can you lift your hands to him right now? Thank you, Father.